There are two dilemmas that rattle the human skull. How do you hold on to someone who won't stay? And how do you get rid of someone who won't go? From Pod 617 Productions, it's Shine On, a presentation of Berkman, Botker, Newman, and Shine. Now here's your host, attorney Evan Shine. Episode 11 of the Shine On podcast, I'm Evan Shine. As always, producer David Diaz is with us. And Dave, I got to tell you, we have a really great show today, Mm. an absolutely incredible guest. And we talk about a really important topic. How can 50-50 custody and equal parenting responsibility end the gender pay gap that exists today? We are going to find out the answers to this, as well as the impact and benefits of 50-50 custody and equal parenting responsibility, and so much more on today's episode. It's often said that numbers don't lie. Surveys and studies and the data tell an incredibly compelling story and one that deserves both attention and action. We are going to talk about a must-read survey on today's episode. Author, journalist, speaker, and gender equality activist Emma Johnson recently conducted a single mom income and time-sharing survey, which we will provide a link to in the show notes. Her findings, her articles on this topic are an absolute must-read and should be a wake-up call for change. Emma is going to join us, and we are going to talk to her about her survey and the results, what her takeaways were, and what surprised her, the benefits and impact of 50-50 custody and the direct link and correlation between equality and time sharing and a single mother's income and well-being. Coming up on the other side of the docket is my interview with our featured guest this week on episode 11 of the Shine On podcast, Emma Johnson. This is an interview that you would not want to miss. All right, Counselor, I hope you're ready for another enthralling edition of The Docket. David, I am always ready. All right, let's do it. And now, let's see what's on The Docket. We got a couple interesting ones today, Evan. The the first one is... I actually have a clip to play for you because it is the trailer for a new video game. And I don't know about you, Evan. I've been waiting for a video game to take on the topic of divorce. Can you believe it? Dave, I got to tell you, I think I reached my peak when it comes to video games in about sixth grade. So, you know, I'm happy to take a listen <laughs> yeah, to the trailer. I was an Atari guy myself. Let's take a listen to the trailer for this new video game. It's called It Takes Two. This is Joseph Farris, game director at Hazelight. And I'm here to show you gameplay of It Takes Two. The game is a co-op action-adventure platformer with a focus on marrying the story and gameplay. You play as Cody and May. Two parents that have decided to divorce. Of course, this upsets their daughter, Rose, who creates two dolls that the parents magically turn into. And with the guidance of a cheesy love book called Dr. Hakim... They have to stay together. I will help you fix your relationship. You now control Cody and May on this crazy ride. All right, so that's that's a little taste for what it's about. But it's kind of like... looks like an animated version of Jumanji or something. But anyway, I'll read a little bit of a news report about it. Give this to It Takes Two, which shows that potential movie and TV cliches, say a couple that's soon to be an ex-couple working together, translate surprisingly well to video games. 
This is a pop culture arena where such topics have yet to be regularly explored. Even when It Takes Two inspires a raised eyebrow, it does so with a divorce-themed story that's rare for slick, run-and-jump-driven puzzle games. It's also arriving a year after pa- arriving after a year of pandemic social distancing in a moment where we've learned that games can connect us. It takes two wants to bring us together by raising questions about how we fall apart. Wow. I don't what do you think of this one, Evan? If I'm gonna tell you, from listening to the clip, I like it. Look, I preface what I'm about to say with the note and the caveat. I haven't played this video game or any video game, like I said, since about sixth grade when Video game life was just, it was simple. One <laughs> system, one controller, three buttons, regular Nintendo. You should have seen me at Tecmo Bowl or Contra. <laughs> I, I was good. As long as, you had, as long as you had Bo Jackson and Tecmo Bowl, you were all set. <laughs> Absolutely. I got to tell you, the 49ers with Ronnie Lott, they, they oh, were my good. go-to team. But Bo Jackson, him and Marcus Allen, they were pretty unbeatable. Yes. Yes. But look, go, going back to, to this video game, I've read several reviews and articles, some positive and some, you know, raising concern about the new video game it takes two, which, you know, I like that this video game connects us, connects people, especially at a time like this with the pandemic. I buy into that. I know there has been research and studies about the positive impact of video games and the messaging and what can be learned and absorbed not just by kids, but by adults through video game platforms. If through this video game, Dave, a message about family can come through and lessons can be taught and lessons can be learned through gaming, I'm all for it. Look, everyone processes things differently. And the topic of divorce and family, it's not an easy one to digest or understand. If through a video game, the family dynamic can be explained in a way that young children and teenagers and maybe even adults can relate to and process, I like it. I like it from an educational perspective. Yeah, I like it as well. I mean, it looks like the theme to some animated movie where the, I mean, it it resembles some, maybe it will be a movie one day where the parents get shrunk and then the kid is responsible for, you know, controlling them and in this fantasy world. So it brings that fantasy world, but then maybe some themes that the kid takes away. That's actually positive. So who knows? Why not? Right. Absolutely. I like it. Yeah. All right. Next up on the docket, we're back with Brad and Angelina. So story here from cinemablend.com. How much Angelina Jolie and Brad Pitt's five-year divorce battle has reportedly cost the couple uncoupled back in 2016, but their ties rage on as they continue to be embroiled in the fifth year of their divorce proceedings. Legal experts believe that Angelina Jolie and Brad Pitt have spent over $1 million each since filing for divorce, and they predict predict their time in court might very well go on for six more years if things continue as they are. Your thoughts, Counselor? Dave, what's more staggering, the length of the divorce or the cost? I mean, look, the party separated in 2016, and it feels like every day, there's a new wrinkle, a new twist in the never-ending divorce between Angelina Jolie and Brad Pitt. There's a reference to Los Angeles divorce attorney Kelly Rickert, who I don't believe represents either party, but she estimates that each has likely spent over $1 million since filing and that the divorce may continue for several more years. Look, I agree that the divorce is going to go on, but I'll tell you what, if you're asking me, My guess on the legal fees would be substantially higher than that. 
Mm. Because the article talks about the players involved. And we've talked about it before on the Shine On podcast. When there is a litigation, there are several key people involved and people who are ordered by the court. And they're not cheap. I mean, the article talks about attorneys, mental health professionals, accountants, private judges with hourly rates of upwards between $500 to $900 per hour. And the amount of upfront money each megastar would have to pay a private judge. Now, I know what all this costs in New York as a divorce attorney, and I can't imagine that Los Angeles is all that different, especially on a celebrity divorce like Pitt and Jolie's, which has been going on for years. But I also want to mention something else about a private judge, which, although it's expensive, in a case like this, it's well worth it, given the star power, the high publicity of this divorce as a private judge in a proceeding in front of a private judge is much more likely to keep proceedings out of the public eye. And this is something that is gaining increasing popularity in New York in high profile cases. But what makes this case go on? Because as I read this article, I'm sure many listeners are reading it wondering the same thing. I'll tell you what, the allegations keep coming in from Angelina Jolie's side. There's reports that she recently filed new court documents accusing Pitt of domestic violence. Custody of their children continues to be the main and central key argument. Dave, when I was reading this article, I couldn't help but think the movie Moneyball. At the end of this day, Brad Pitt will have spent more money on fees in this proceeding than Billy Bean, who Pitt famously played in Moneyball, I think spent on any player for the Oakland A's. I, I, I couldn't get the I couldn't get the book Michael Lewis's book Moneyball out of my head because the amount of fees it's astronomical. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the, in the real life, Billy Bean went through a divorce, but it was much much less costly than the for the actor that portrayed him. That's exactly uh, right. Uh, well, we wish our best, I guess, to Brad and Angelina, but excellent point on the private judges. Have you found that this is a trend that's grown? I mean, I know mediation and arbitration has been around for a long time, but is it ever popular? So the private judge, it's a great question. The private judge concept in New York, it is gaining popularity. The other thing that's happened, which has, I think, accelerated attorneys and clients using a private judge is the coronavirus, the Mm. pandemic, because the court system for a time wasn't available for people. You could not file a new action and there was a backlog. So people were looking for ways to resolve their case, move things forward, keep it out of the public spotlight. And the concept of a private judge, again, has been increasing in popularity for those reasons, but they're expensive. So you have to have the resources and funds and money to be able to afford working with a private judge. Excellent. That's it for the doc. Coming up next, Evan's conversation with Emma Johnson. Our featured guest this week on the Shine Up podcast is Emma Johnson. Emma is a journalist, author, speaker, and gender equality activist. She is the founder of WealthySingleMommy.com, the world's largest platform for single moms. She is the number one best-selling author of the terrific book, The Kick-Ass Single Mom, which has received such incredible, well-deserved attention. The New York Post says it's a smart and must read. 
Emma's been featured in the New York Times, Wall Street Journal, CNN, CNBC, Oprah Magazine, Time, and literally hundreds of other media outlets. She frequently speaks on women's issues, including at the United Nations Summit for Gender Equality. She is the founder of Moms for Shared Parenting, an activist organization aimed at making equally shared parenting the norm. Emma is at the forefront of the equally shared parenting movement and a leading voice for change and an outstanding resource of knowledge and information for women, single mothers, and so many people. Emma, thank you for joining us. I appreciate the time. How are you? Hi, thanks, Evan. I'm blushing. Thank you for that generous intro. Absolutely, of course. And Emma, there's so much that I want to talk to you about. Your work through your different platforms, Wealthy Single Mommy, Moms for Shared Parenting, and the findings from your recently published white paper and your single mom income and time sharing survey, which we're going to provide a link to in the show notes. We'll talk about the survey and findings, but first I want to start by asking you about an article you recently wrote, which was published in Elle magazine in March of this year titled, I thought I won my divorce. Then I realized the standard custody arrangement is court-sanctioned sexism. How is formally tasking mothers with all the responsibilities of childcare any sort of victory for women? I thought it was absolutely brilliant, and there's so much to talk about. First, what was the impetus for you to write this article? Well, that essay is it's very much my own personal journey from being what is really the standard in the United States in the world today, which is if you get divorced or break up, which, you know, because you're in the biz, that the majority of separated families, the parents were never married in the first place. That's the, really the new norm in the United States. But the standard issue deal is the kids stay with the mom and the dads get visits. And there's usually some financial exchange there where the dads are paying the moms, which really comes down to women being financially dependent on men. So when I split up, I just followed along that model. It looked like every other divorce family I knew. It looked like the divorced families in the media. It looked like my own divorced parents from when I was growing up. And I didn't really think about it. And I really had gone out of my way, actually, to find a really thoughtful attorney. I also live in New York City like you. There was some interesting like medical concerns in my family, which made me think that our my divorce needed some extra sensitivity. I wanted to be, you know, I didn't want to go down that litigious, angry route. So I did go out of my way to find attorneys that were going to be like I interviewed collaborative divorce attorneys, people that had mediation practices. And yet nobody along that journey ever brought up 50-50 parenting ever. And so fast forward, I get divorced, settled into it. My kids were tiny at the time. Like I was actually pregnant when I separated with my youngest. And very soon after that, I was like, wait a minute. Why did I think that was such a great deal? Like I'm completely overwhelmed. Like most single moms, I became the sole financial provider for my family, which was no fault at all of my kid's dad. It was a medically related situation. And I was like, this is like, I feel like Jean Cleaver. I like the housewife, but I'm also <laughs> like the Murphy Brown. And it was just like, I was like, this is just absolutely ridiculous. So then, you know, within a couple of years, I did start blogging about single motherhood and this business grew and all of a sudden, I had like, you know, 
hundreds and then thousands. And then now I have millions of data points every single year, single moms that I'm interacting with. And some of it I can actually tabulate like and come up with some <laughs> nifty spreadsheets about how women are, what they're interested in, how they're interacting in terms of their ideas about parenting and and custody, but also I just anecdotally, you know, I started seeing this trend. It's like, well, the moms that was, were like 50-50 or had a more equitable time sharing, they were, I mean, it's not rocket science. You don't need millions of data points. It's just, you can understand it. Like you have more time away from your kids to rest, to invest in your career, to hang out, to date, to do serve your community, whatever's important to you to serve yourself. It's, just it's easier to make money. It's easier to be happier and healthier. It's easier not to resent your kids. It's easier not to resent your ex-husband or your kid's dad. It just made sense. And so my, I've always been a card-carrying feminist, um, very interested. And that was the whole impetus for Wealthy Single Mommy, talking about not just single motherhood in general, but looking at it through the lens of feminism and gender equality. And, you know, I felt like I really kind of took off professionally and, and financially after my divorce. Whereas my mother, who's also an educated white woman, she did not, you know, but I also think, well, she was coming from a different time as a different message, different opportunities than I do. So it was just kind of an intellectual exercise in looking at these things. So, yeah, so fast forward today, it's what is we're speaking in 2021. And I have become just very interested in this equally shared parenting movement, which has been around for 40 or 50 years since we've been having these mass divorces. And it's mostly been white men that have led that movement. And they're very angry. You know, they feel their father, their kids have been taken away from them. They are often, money again is usually tied in. They're forced to support women that they are no longer partnered with, who often are the, now today, really, you can make a very good argument that women have an equal opportunity to work and earn, but women yet don't earn an equal measure. Well, why? Well, it's really because we're taking care of kids. And I understand why, like I was a stay at home mom. I bought into all those messages that it's best for kids, better moms stay at home with their kids, better moms martyr ourselves and our careers and our financial independence for our kids. I bought into hundred percent of that. And I get that. I'm very empathetic to that message, but I, again, I, so I, I was also very empathetic to these men who were traumatized are, I mean, we're talking about 20 million U S families where the parents live separately and 80% of those kids live primarily with their moms. Why? Why? Because we think collectively that that's best for kids. But the thing is over these decades, there's been this enormous body. I mean, hundreds of really great pieces of science, peer-reviewed, cross-reviewed pieces of science that find 50-50 time with both parents is what is best for kids. It is absolutely what is best for the children. And it's not just the hours, right? It's not just that they get to spend time with their moms and dads. They get to, you know, be with their dads. Their dads can influence them. They can develop bonds with their dad's families and friends. It's not just that, which that's important too. That 50% number is so important because it signals to the kid that their dad is equally involved. Their dad is equally committed. Their dad is not going to leave them. So I'm talking and talking. I can let you jump here. No, and, I mean, you, and you bring up so, so, so many fantastic points that we're going to get to. And you mentioned that you know, it's often that something it's not learned for a lot of people until after a divorce is finalized. Mm. It's not something that attorneys will often discuss with their clients when they go through the process. And in the article in L, you know, you mentioned the association with victory and winning with mm. custody and having a hundred percent of caregiving responsibility. Where does this pressure, this feeling, this association come from 
for so many people that they associate winning their divorce, their separation with having 100% caregiving responsibility? Yeah, that's a great question. Well, first, I do want to give a lot of credence. I mean, a lot of our ideas about parenthood, especially after divorce, come like these early ideas, a tender years doctrine. So it was very early science. That was considered you know, very respected at that time, but now it's like 40 years old. This idea that children did best with a primary parent. And of course, we assumed, especially back then, that that primary parent should be the mother and they bond deeply with one parent. And there may be other caring adults in their lives. There might be a dad or grandparent or nanny, but these are like satellite parents or satellite caregivers and loving people. And that one home and that one sheltered home and those early, especially those tender years, those early years was what was best for kids. So we pair that with sexism, right? This idea that mothers are primarily the better parent. And there's all kinds of polls and studies that show that as collectively as people in the United States, we do believe that. We believe that mothers are the better parents and dads are disposable, right? We know that dads are good. Like intellectually, we know, yeah, it's great to have a dad around, but we don't really need the dad, right? Like the dads are like the bumbling Homer Simpson character, like they're okay, <laughs> but they're not critical. Sure. That's contemporary. Like, again, we are have, looking at decades and decades of really great science that shows that's absolutely wrong. Children can and do bond with their dads, uh, and they fare best when they have an opportunity to bear, uh, bond equally with their dads from birth. This is not just like, oh, the mothers have the babies for a year or two and nurse them, and then they hand them off and they can play, you know, softball in the backyard with the dad, and that's nice. It's like, we're talking about true bonding parenting relationships, and this can happen with men and women equally. So I, you know, it's a lot of misunderstanding. And again, I empathize with everybody and men hold these ideas too. I mean, we're talking about good men, progressive men, feminist men that are committed to being fathers, but they still buy into this idea. Yes. Like, but the, but it's the mother and she birthed them and nursed these babies. So we all kind of collectively buy into this, even if it's on an unconscious level, but it's really to the detriment. So when we divorce, you ask about winning, it's like divorce is hard. I mean, it's a trauma. Sure. You're losing a life that you thought you wanted. You're, maybe there's a romantic loss there. Your quality of life in terms of just economics is going to change dramatically no matter what. And so there's a lot of turmoil. And we have a system that is set up where everybody starts at zero when it comes to the kids. There's zero and fight for as much as you can. And we have a whole industry built around that. I mean, we have a divorce industrial complex that is set up that only profits when people fight. If we took that out, we're in more developed countries in Northern Europe and stuff. It's not a fight. People go online and they fought in Denmark and they go online and they file their divorce and maybe pay a 20 krone or 50 krone fee. And the next day, they're just that force and everybody just 50-50 and everyone earns their own money and they're all adults about it. I mean, I just last week, I had a really great call with this New York City family attorney and she reached out because she read the L article and she loved it. And, and she, I think we kind of connected. We're about the same age, moms. So she's married, whatever. And she, we just had like a kind of mind melt. She's 100% on board with what I, I'm, I'm out here. You know, I'm suggesting that people start at 50-50. When, instead of starting at zero and clawing your way to whatever percent you can get, start at 50-50, because it's very hard to make an argument that you should deviate from that. And even if there is an argument to deviate, I would say like, look, there are cases where there is abuse. Those are very much the minority. And in fact, sure. I'm very excited to understand recently that domestic violence rates have like plummeted over the last couple of decades. 
COVID aside, there was a spike, but there's been incredible work by domestic violence advocates and workers and law enforcement and public education to really curb that. But outside of, you know, just incurable, very severe abuse, I mean, people do have mental health issues. People do have addiction issues. But if we could like reform our culture and we reform our law, our, our legal culture, right? I mean, in our courts, right? These are kind of separate but overlapping things. If we like, so, okay, somebody's having a, a mental health crisis. That doesn't mean that they lose their kids forever. It means that maybe they need some more support. And maybe it means that now because we have a new culture of equality, the, the custodial parent can say, okay, like I understand the science. I understand this is best for kids. I understand this is best for me as the mom or me as a father to have equality in our co-parenting relationships. So let's take the long game here and hope that in some months or maybe some years we move back to equality. And it's not about fighting. It's like, okay, you need to have a timeout because you're having some mental health issues. I got the kids forever and I'm going to move them back to be with my mom. So F you. Eh. No. And Emma, what, what you not- just, yeah. And what you just said, unfortunately, that happens. You know, it happens. Mm-hmm. That's people's mindset. I see it. You know, as someone who litigates and spends time in a courtroom, I see the flaws and the challenges and the problems with the system. You mentioned collaborative law. You mentioned alternative ways to reach a resolution. And you're right. If the mindset shifted, if the mindset changed and there was a different approach and a better approach and there was a presumption of 50-50, which, look, I'm in New York. You're in New York. New York is not one of those states where there is a presumption of 50-50. But I'm going to ask you, should there be? And from a legislature standpoint, how do we get there? There's only really one state where the the policy has caught up with our culture. So if you, first of all, I just want to say that 50-50 is quickly becoming the norm everywhere. It polls extremely high, like in the 80s and 90% all across the country, men and women, liberal and conservatives, Republicans and Democrats, rural and urban, it is popular. People understand that is right. So why is it not happening in our courts? Well, that is going to that you're tossing the ball to me, and I have a whole line of questions for you as a litigator. So we can follow that up in a second. So Kentucky in 2018 enacted their full law, which is 50-50 parenting time. So it's a presumption of equal parenting time when parents separate, and it's a beautifully written law because it's not complicated. It just sets up a presumption of equality. But there are also specific 15, I think 15 points where if a judge were to deviate from equality, they can choose one of these 15 reasons. And they actually have to articulate why, because, and those 15 do include abuse, just abandonment, gross neglect, all of the things that you would hope would be there. But, and so those are covered. So people do have legitimate concerns. I, you know, I talked about 50, well, but what about my case? What about my case where my kid's dad moved across the country? What about my case where there was a very severe abuse? What about my case where my kid's Dad is just, you know, he is extremely addicted and he can't do it. All right. Those are are accounted for. We don't want kids to be in those situations, obviously. But it's important because it, it demands that the judge, if they do deviate, they have to say specifically why. They can't just be like, because I said so. Because I want I think that mom should be, you know, kids should be with their moms or better parents. Or because I think that she seems like a bitch and I'm just gonna give the kids to him. Like it can't be arbitrary. It has to be a real reason. And it's remarkable because within two years of that law passing, well, first of all, it continued to be extremely popular in the state of Kentucky. There was almost no pushback. Some domestic violence advocates even published an op-ed in the paper supporting it and celebrating it. But there was great early data that within two years, the number of court filings 
family court filings in the state of Kentucky went down by 11%. And so that is just so remarkable because we don't want people to go to court. We don't want them to even need to call a lawyer. We just want them to understand there's just not that much to fight about most of the time. And then that, that makes more room for the families that really do need the family courts and to really serve them better. So I find that very exciting. Another uh, state that is also living in the future with the rest of us is Arizona. And I think maybe 10 or 15 years ago, they passed a, a equally shared parent law. They've been working. They have an academic there that's done some remarkable research around in, in, in family psychology and child psychology. And so he had just been working on education, ed- educating family judges and attorneys and the whole court system for many years, but why this is good for kids, why it's good for family court, why it's good for everybody. So when they had a bill come through, it just kind of sailed through and there's a written, the language is more, it's a little bit uh, different, which it seems to work very well there as um, maximum time with both parents, right? So you can't get more maximum than (laughs) 50-50, but there's bills being passed everywhere and New York does not have it. But I started to say, I spoke with this family, a divorce attorney in Manhattan and I got divorced 12 years ago. And I shared with her about how nobody was talking about equal parenting at that time. But she said, now all the time, families come into her office and say, we want 50-50 or dads are pushing for it. Maybe the moms push back, but they go to court and the judges uh, more and more. She says she's seeing the judges will say oh, it's 50, 50, unless you can tell me why not. And I was so heartened by that because I have come to understand New York, New Jersey, Connecticut to be some of the worst places and for families, because we have such a culture of litigation. We start with that fight and look, we have the highest population of attorneys in the country, in this region. There is, so this, so going back to this one conversation again, I had last week, she loves what I'm doing. She believes in it. She would love to see more of her clients do it. And I said, well, listen, how can we work together to, you know, keep promoting this issue? She's like, well, my hesitance is that families come in and they want, you know, they might not want that, or I'm representing someone that doesn't want it. My job's, I said, no, your, and I said, look, your job. And she's like, I don't want to push people away. She has to look out for her business. She has to look out for her billable hours. And I said, no, your job is to serve your client. And after I showed you all the science, it's irrefutable. All the science shows this is what is best for children. This is what is best for women. This is what is best for gender equality. This is what is best for men. I mean, the suicide rate of men in this country and especially divorced dads, it's astonishing and it's growing and it's deeply linked to the fact that men lose their children when they divorce. It's unethical. It's a human rights issue. This is good for the economy. This is great for our, and look, the fact is, if somebody comes in your office, Evan, they are a rich person. If you can afford to, if you were married in the first place, you are an upper-educated, middle-class, educated white person, statistically. If you can afford a New York City attorney, you are in the upper 5% of our population. This is the most privileged population in this country, in this world. You have an obligation to inform the judiciary about what is possible. And just because you can bill three, four, five hundred $500 an hour and you have your billable hour quota you have to meet for your firm, let's take that out. How are we best serving your individual client and the greater good and moving this issue of family justice forward for everyone? And it is not about litigation. Absolutely. Emma, you, you make so many, I mean, great points. You talk about the court system, you talk about the way it's set up. And I'll tell you that I've had that experience where I'm in front of judges and at the first appearance, 
they'll say, look, neither parent has a greater right to the mm. children. We're going to start off 50-50. We're going to share. I get chills yeah. hearing it, that. It, it's it's incredible, and but a lot of times it's judge specific, and I want to see, as I know you do as well, that becoming the norm. Because there are times where I'm in front of judges, and the conversation is, let's work our way towards fifty fifty. Which, after an appointment of a forensic psychologist, after the appointment of an attorney for the children, after the appointment of an independent mental health professional, and hundreds of thousands of dollars are spent. And it doesn't need to be that way if there was the presumption as opposed towards gradually over the course of several months or a year working towards that shared parenting time slowly because it would change the entire discussion, the entire the divorce process, and it would free up so much time and money that is, to be candid, I mean, spent unnecessarily on litigation. But I think it also starts with the clients, the attorneys, education, you mentioned, which I love that word. It's about everyone having the awareness and education. And you talk about science and data and research, which, you know, fills your survey and white paper. That's what it's about. It's getting the education out there to talk about the benefits of shared parenting time, 50-50 custody arrangements, really on everyone. It, there's no reason not to. And it, but it, there's so many nuances in that, like people. So, but then of course we have to talk about the money part of it. So sure. actually we have a shared friend and colleague, which is Susan Guthrie. And I was on her podcast. She's a attorney turned mediator in this space. And she, in her, in our conversation, she shared about a family and the dad came in he's like, I want 50, 50. And because he kind of, he understood if he had less, he'd be really marginalized in the kids' lives. And the but he said, but I don't want the fifty. I but I don't want to be responsible if the kids get sick and need to be picked up from school. And it's like it has it goes deeper, right? There's a lot of layers there because we're really changing our culture. It's not just fifty percent time, fifty percent rights. It's fifty percent responsibility. And in that particular family, it got sticky because the mom agreed, was ready to agree to that because she knew that there was some alimony money attached to that. So it goes both ways. And it's like, okay, dads, you want 50% rights. It is truly 50% responsibility. It means, okay, you got a big business trip coming up, but it's your week with the kids. You have to make some hard decisions like women have been making since the dawn of time. And that's where our quality comes in. That's where the larger ripples of these, this movement is going to ripple out because all of a sudden now, again, these are your clients, these rich people. We know that just historically into this very day, the rich white guys in the C-suite that have the power in, in the Western world and the Eastern world and the Southern hemisphere, like they have stay at home wives. They don't feel the pain of child rearing. And that is really what the pay gap is. It is women making choices to step back, step out, make themselves small, not go for the promotion, not take that business trip. That is where the pay gap comes from today. It didn't 20, 30 years ago. It's today. So those stay at home, those guys with the stay at home wives, they never feel that pain because they've just got a, a wife at home that blindly takes, well, guess what? Those guys are all divorced now too, but they have the kids minority time. And they like it that way. Why? Because they don't have to worry about picking up the sick kid when they've got a board meeting. But guess what? I, when you have 50-50 and it's 50% rice at 50% time and 50% responsibility, you're on the hook. You have to scramble. You have to take off. You have to cancel an important meeting or scramble for childcare or call in a favor with your sister. Just like every single mom absolutely knows about, I don't have to explain that to her. 
Yep. And then those guys get it firsthand. People don't change unless they experience the pain. And then they're making better family policy decisions in the governments that they lead and the businesses they lead and their middle management position. And they're more flexible about family leave for at up and down the pay scale, right? Whether we're talking about running a fast food, managing for a fast food restaurant or being the CEO of a fortune 50 company. So that is a really systematic change where I'm very excited. And now again, we know that unpartnered parents are the majority. 64% of millennial moms are unmarried. And that's a Johns Hopkins number. That's not some like internet poll. That's like yeah. a real number. And those women, like many of them have boyfriends or partners they may even live with. But statistically, if you're not married, you're not going to stay together. So that we know that is now the, the norm. Young women, young moms are not partnered. So we have an incredible opportunity to change the gender equality needle through this demographic that everybody wants to ignore because historically and to this day, they are lower income and people of color. So if we want, listen, ladies, if we want equal rights, we want equal rights to pay, equal rights to positions of power, job opportunities, they are there for us. Young women make up the now the majority of college admissions and graduates both. Um, they're the majority in many graduate degrees and they are now, it's 50-50 starting out in job market. Women still tend to choose lower paying jobs because they're more family friendly. And even when women and men are starting out the same starting point in like, let's say the corporate world where it's easier to measure these things, they start out the same levels, same salaries, same benefits, same trajectory. There's many programs built into corporate America to keep women and promote them and groom them and mentor them. And yet the pay gap and the leadership gaps persist because women are still off ramping. And I get that. Like it is a real pressure that we have for moms. Somebody has to stay home. Somebody has to do, but I'm asking you, but you also have to take on equal responsibility, right? So when we're talking specifically about separated families, it's like, there's a dad there. It's like, he gets 50% time, give it up, you know, give it up. But also you have to let go of control and you also have to take responsibility for your financial life. Just because there's a child support calculator in your state that you can tap into, just because that your you know, expensive attorney is earning their retainer with you by getting it back through alimony you know, payments for a bunch of years, just because you can doesn't make it right and doesn't make it productive. Because there, I mean, let me tell you what, there's no such thing as a free alimony check. You will pay a price for that. You're going to pay a price for making yourself small. You're going to hold yourself back in your career. It creates, like, there are plenty of studies that show the more money changing hands between co-parents, the higher conflict there is, which is bad for everybody. And then back to the research that I did over, and, and have published, the more uh, equal equality there is in time sharing. So moms that have equal time sharing arrangements, single moms with equal time sharing arrangements are more than 300% more likely to earn six figures than moms who have their kids 100% of the time. And those same numbers apply to women earning less. There's a direct correlation between equality in your time sharing and how much time and mental space you have to work and earn. And Emma, we've talked about the financial benefits, the financial opportunities, really that financial independence that comes out of having that equally shared parenting time, equally shared parenting responsibility. What are some of the other benefits to equally shared parenting in terms of happiness, in terms of navigating post-divorce life, whether it's dating, whether it's time for yourself? What are some of the other non-financial benefits that really 
could help people sort of navigate the challenges after going through a divorce or separation? Well, it's just the sooner you can get to 50-50, the better just for your own sake, because there's nothing else to fight about. Like the schedule 50-50, you're all making your own money. You're both equally responsible for the kids. I mean, things are going to come up like, like, trust me, the kids are going to misbehave or have sure. a special need. There's a, or look, somebody loses their job and they, there's a bazillion things that are going to happen in life. So why not shore up your energy and the goodwill in the relationship for those unforeseen disasters or challenges that are going to be there? Cause that's life. It frees you up, right? When men are dependent on women to rate, do their share of the child rearing and women are dependent on men for their pay their own rent. You're dependent on somebody that you're not sleeping with anymore. You're dependent on somebody that you want to move on from. It's like, what do you get out of holding on to them? And that's a really great question. What do you get out of that? And my one thing that came out of my survey is like women who had equal time sharing were more likely to say they felt proud of being a, a single mom. They felt like they were setting a better role model, being better role models and setting better examples for their kids. And it's like, why wouldn't you're fighting less, you're earning more, you have more time to date and hang out with your kids and go to church, whatever you want to do with sure. your time, you're being a woman and not martyring yourself for your kids. Cause those kids are stressful. They're annoying. <laughs> like you're, that's, of that's the thing. Women are constantly complaining about like my whole Instagram feed is like women, like it's wine time. Kids are stressing <laughs> me out. And then they turn around and they fight their exes tooth and nail for more time. It's like, are you like, what is that? You can't have it both ways. So, so, so let's talk about that because I, I, I think it sounds, I, I, I love hearing that statistic. I love hearing, I mean, you've spoken to so many single mothers, so many women, and I work with a lot of women going through separation and divorce, but I want to ask you because what would you say to someone who hears that and they're in the middle of the process and thinking about what life would look like a year down the road yeah. seems so far or two years away seems far. I mean, for so many people, it's hard to even see what the next hour of your day is going to look like when you're in the middle of it. And it could be scary. It could be overwhelming. So what advice, what would you say to someone who's in the thick of it, in the middle of it, and just is having a hard time seeing how spending time, let's say, without the children. It the sounds devastating. Yeah, yeah, you can't do it because you're in crisis. Like you're, it's all, you're spending all your time. That's a great question. Like you're spending all your energy just to get up in the morning. You know, and you're managing your kids who may be upset about the divorce. You're like your extended family and friends. I don't know if they feel like they need to pick a side. You know, it's just horrifying. You may have to change house. You have to go back to work and you didn't think you were going like so many things. So how could you possibly think about the rest of your life? Right. And that's where you need a good if you do have a, the luxury of having a divorce professional in, on board like that is their job to help you see. I mean, I remember like very early being in the middle of my trauma and like a friend was like, you know, you're going to be fine. You're totally can get remarried again. I was like, I just was like, I like, I, it literally had not even crossed my mind that that was a possibility, which is so stupid. Of course, like people get remarried every day, <laughs> Sure, but it's yeah. just like, I, my brain was not, did not have like that, whatever muscle that can receive that information was shut down. And that is one thing that I want. Like you have to look at the long game. It seems traumatizing that you would be away from your babies, even for a night. And the next thing you know, you're going to want to date. And how are you going to get laid if you got those kids in your house every day? It's true. I, it's true. And I have clients that say to me, I want to date. I want to find love. I want to look for a job. I don't have five minutes to go on a dating service, to upload a profile 
or even create a resume. So you're right. It's people want those things, but it's hard for people to find whether it's the time or to envision it and to see it. And I think you're right. It, it takes having the right support around someone to really help them education awareness. But for a lot of people, it's hard. It is. And it's like, it's a lot, life is long. And the wish I have for you is you're not going to be so angry and spend so much anger on your ex. Like take stuff all your head. Like, how are you going to no. build a career? Or how are you going to think about getting back in shape or whatever that like life is so long and this is just a bad moment you're in. So let's look at what you want your whole life to look like and what you want to model for your kids. I mean, that's the thing. I'm so heartened to hear stories from you about what's happening in the legal system because this is the future. Younger women, so I'm 44. It's been 12 years since my divorce. And just even in the last few years, I hear from younger moms, like in their 30s, whatever, 20s and 30s. And they're like, oh yeah, we do 50-50. Everyone in my neighborhood, like the mom, mommy, Facebook group, whatever. It's all 50-50. And it's so incredibly exciting to me and so foreign to what even a few years ago looked like in our culture. So what I say to women, it's like, do what are your kids going to think? Now we know, I mean, our kids are not going to be married, heterosexual, like that whole nuclear family thing, that shit sailed. Judge it all you want. I don't really care. That is just not what it's going to look like probably for your kids. Your kids are going to have some other configuration of family and they are going to look, they are going to be all about equality. They are all going to be about low conflict. And how are they going to judge your divorce? Your divorce looks like your grandmother's divorce. Yep. And yep. they are going to judge you because what all this stuff that sounds very new and exciting about all the science and it's like blowing your mind because at the same time, it's so common sense and so normal sounding. Our kids, it's going to be the most normal, absolutely normal thing in the world. And they're going to judge your ass so hard, so hard. It's, it's such a great point. I think the whole concept of family and what it looks like, I think you're right. It's changing and has changed. And the amount of times clients will say to me, Evan, I'm the one who's taken my children to the pediatrician, or I'm the one who's done pickups and drop-offs, so therefore I should be the primary parent. I'm having those conversations so much less now than I did years ago, because I do think there is that recognition from both sides. And I think, again, it's whether it's the right attorney, the right fit, the right person to help. It's culture. Our culture is people are getting it. Yeah. It's very exciting. It's so heartening to me and it's changing so quickly. Like it's like the tipping point of this. It's remarkable. I mean, this is what I do full time is talk to single moms. And really now I just talk about equal, equal parenting is my real main thing. I'm doing my activism, but it's like, again, I'm in this space and I'm here to tell you this is here to stay and it's but, but wonderful it, it is wonderful and Emma I want to talk about your platform wealthy single mommy mm. in my practice whether I represent someone in a post-divorce matter or someone's looking to change counsel during a divorce it amazes me how many times someone will say Evan only if I knew that only if I had that bit of information only if I was told that early on how much less money would have I spent? How much happier would have I been? My divorce would have lasted five months or six months instead of the two, three year, you know, custody fight that ended up ensuing. And tell me about when you started Wealthy Single Mommy, what did you see or what did you not see really out there from an education resource standpoint that led you to create this incredible platform, which 
for everyone listening out there, the information, the knowledge, the resources on the website, wealthysinglemommy.com, it's tremendous from parenting articles or dating articles or the surveys and studies. What did you not see from an education standpoint that led you to create this platform? Yeah, I mean, there was like single mom stuff. It just didn't speak to me. I mean, there's, I don't even remember. I mean, that was like nine years ago on the internet so it's just like 500 years in like real time but (laughs) like you know there's like you know cute stuff about like complaint there's a lot I I think really my mission was to kind of unwind this assumption that if you're a single mom you're going to be broken alone and because I know I bought into that that was totally what my mom liked to talk about my entire to this day right like old lady and she's still hung up on her divorce from 40 years ago (laughs) and I'm like you know and I'm like I just can't afford personally I cannot afford to buy into that and I did it you know I just again I like had a lot of immediate professional success I was not on welfare I enjoyed dating at that stage of life a lot and and my kids seemed like they were doing okay I mean they're like you know they're okay so I was like well let's how can we you know I had to struggle through all that kind of mindset stuff myself I'm like well if I can help some other woman fast forward that and just get over it I mean look you and I are in the same bubble we both are like these New York City folks and this is not necessarily what's going on in America I mean in America there is the rest of the country especially outside of large cities there's it's a I mean we have a very diverse country and the attitudes about being a single mom, I mean, there are many of these women that are in some of my communities, they're like, look, I am the only single mom in my whole town. There's so much shame. I like completely ostracized from the other parents at school. I feel like so much pressure from my family to be the primary parent, because if I'm not, I'm a bad mom in their eyes. And those, it's very easy to tell you, oh, just dismiss that. Who cares what people think? But I mean, we're social beings. We need community, especially when you're going through a hard time. You know, our parents and our friends and our, even just the acquaintances on the playground, their opinions do matter. So all these positive things that you and I are seeing and our professional worlds and our social networks, the, you know, and that's snowballing because of this cultural change that's happening, but the cultural change is happening much less slowly, if not at all, in a lot of this country. So it's, I think, very important to be respectful of people at where they are. So yeah, to answer your question, that's what's going, that was what was going on. And that's a really good point. And I wonder if there was that presumption of 50-50 time and 50-50 shared responsibility, would that trickle down to people? And that became the norm. Would there be less overtime that external pressure that people would feel with, would that change the conversation or help alleviate some of those pressures from the outside yeah, or some of the, because concern? it's coming yeah. from an outside source. Right. Exactly. Like, so for example, like there's all this stuff, like, you know, like women are like, well, but I feel so guilty leaving my kids. Like this friend of mine here in the city, like it's super progressive feminist ballsy woman. And she's like doing the, I mean, she's divorced a long time and she's yeah. like, she keeps coming back. I think she wants to do the 50-50, but she needs me to give her permission. You know, because it's like, <laughs> why do you keep bringing up to me? I'm going to tell you what you don't want to hear, which is you're wrong, lady. Yep. And feels all this guilt that she's going to make her kids going to feel like she abandoned her. There's because there's choice. But also this mom, because women do have the power. They feel like that we do have the power. And so there's it's such a heavy thing on what we do with it, right? And so if we give up our time with the kids, it's an arbitrary thing. Whereas like, 
Do you feel guilty for sending your kids to school? No, it's a law. Like a sure. truancy officer is going to come and knock on your door if you don't. So it takes a choice out. So like, to your point, which is if we make it the law, it takes that choice out and it just simplifies everything. It simplifies things emotionally for moms. They don't have to make those hard decisions. Yep. And I've had clients reach out a year, two years, three years down the road who have said to me, Evan, the time that they have with their kids is wonderful. And the time that they have without their kids is equally wonderful. Well, they, well, they've started businesses. They've started careers. They spend time with friends. They spend time doing things that they're, they love and that they're passionate about. Mm-hmm. They run, they get up in the morning, they have time for themselves. And I want to ask you, are you hearing from all the people that you speak to is, are, are people accepting that, are people seeing down the road, right? The benefits of it. Are you seeing people? They're starting to, yeah, because we earlier. are talking about it. And I think that's the thing. You just see it organically. Like you can, you know, social media is real and it's powerful. And, you know, I'm doing these media projects with this survey and it just happens. And, 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 you know, and it's tough because like many moms want 50-50 and the dads are not into it. You know, the this whole shared parenting movement has really been very much dominated by men and conservative men. And, and it's very anti-women it's like ah the women take the kids away and feminism has ruined this and there's a there's truth in that there is but the culture goes both ways and for every man that i hear talk about how women have taken the kid their kids away from them i can show you a woman who is overwhelmed and frustrated because the dads won't show up and do their share and there is very good so reason to understand both sides of that right women are pressured to sacrifice our ourselves and to take that power because we don't have power in the public sphere. We don't have power in Washington or in the corporate world to dominate there, but we can dominate at home and therefore we do. And we have this pressure to be the primary moms. Dads, on the other hand, have all this pressure to dominate in the public sphere. You know, if dads, men are not professionally successful, that's a huge shame. That's supposed to be their job, but then they're asked to sacrifice their fatherhood for that. Right. So there are two sides of this. And I see both genders not taking on their responsibility and and wielding their rights unduly. And as we wind down on the Shine On podcast, I want to briefly touch on financial education and financial literacy, which is a topic that is important to me. I grew up in a family of teachers and educators. And so I want to ask, similar to the parenting schedule, this traditional old school view of mom has the kids hundred percent of the time. Dad sees the kids on alternate weekends. There still exists in some ways this, you're right. The gender roles where husband, dad is the breadwinner and mom is the stay at home parent. How do we educate? How do we change that conversation, change that narrative? And what can people do and women do either before marriage or in a relationship and in a marriage early on to become more involved in the finances and to really learn and educate themselves on money and really everything that's happening in their lives. Because in your practice, you see, I imagine you see women that show up and very highly educated women, very educated, like maybe had at mm-hmm. some point a lot of professional success. Maybe they even still do. And they have no idea where the forms are. They have no idea what the passwords are. They are like- Every day, every day. IRA, Roth, what's that? Yep. Ladies, you are an adult, you're an adult ass woman. 
And again, if you are in Evan's office, you are the most privileged person on this planet. Step into that power on behalf of, if you can't, if you don't have the wherewithal to do it for yourself, do it for your kids, do it for all those women out there that do not have that privilege. Make your own money like an adult. Take care of your own money like an adult. If you don't know stuff, that's okay. You can Google. Go ask all those other women that are now in your professional circle for some help. You're already hanging out with successful, educated people. You don't have to go find them. If maybe you can ask for a referral for a financial advisor, start really basic. I mean, the whole Wall Street has set itself up to make it intimidating, especially for women. So you will go and pay all their stupid fees. It doesn't have to be that complicated. You can just literally Google and educate yourself for most of it. Ask for help. But the, that, that's all ancillary. Like the main thing is you have to make your own money and have your own career. And not just so you can win a divorce or you can whatever, because that is what adults do. Absolutely incredible, incredibly powerful. And I love what you're doing right now to help so many people, single moms. And the last question I have is you recently launched the 2021 Kick-Ass Single Mom Stimulus Grant. Can you tell us about that? Yeah, well, I've had a grant program on and off for a bunch of years, and it used to be, it used to be a little bit different. It used to go to a mom who's doing something really incredible. It wasn't to like the neediest case. It was just kind of to highlight and celebrate a mom that was doing something really cool. Again, to change this narrative about moms, single moms always being down and out. But over the last year, I mean, things were, it's a different world now. So it started off weekly and now we do a month, but just, you know, 500 bucks to a mom needs it, no strings attached, just cash money. And it's been pretty awesome for lots of reasons, including that it's just people just send me money to distribute to people that just have money to give. And it's something I've learned along this journey. You know, it's like giving is a gift, right? It's like, if I can just, people want to give and they don't know how. And, and it's also helping moms. Like when you are having a bad time, you know, you really are broken. This is, you know, this women like not going to have a place to live. Like their power's out. They don't have food in the house for their kids but they still have something to give, right? They can call in and check on a neighbor. They can be a good friend. They can remember that they're a really good mom and helping people understand that they are giving, that they can give and that they do give is something that I've realized is like a really, it's a really powerful thing. If you can help somebody see that. Emma, thank you. This was incredible. You are a resource for so many people. You were changing the narrative, changing the conversation. You are at the forefront for change towards equal and shared parenting responsibilities and a voice for so many women, single mothers. Thank you for the work that you were doing. And I just briefly want to talk about your book, The Kick-Ass Single Mom. It's a wonderful book and resource. Tell all the listeners where they could pick up a copy. Oh, well, just go to Amazon like everybody else. <laughs> <laughs> and we're going to link, we're going to put a link in the show notes to the study, your findings and the book as well. Thank you for coming on the Shine On podcast. It was an absolute pleasure. All right. Thanks so much. That was really fun. Another great show on the Shine On podcast, episode 11 in the books. Such a powerful, inspirational, and important interview with Emma Johnson. Thank you for listening to the Shine On podcast. To the listeners on Apple, Spotify, Stitcher, Google, and wherever else you listen to your podcast, thank you for listening. Producer, David Yass, what a show. All the listeners can follow me on LinkedIn, Instagram, Twitter, Clubhouse. I'm Evan Shine. We'll talk to you again real soon.